0: Can you imagine a state where in every bar, all that was served were airplane mini bottles of spirits? So you order an old fashioned, and they take the tiny bottle of JD off the shelf, unscrew it, add sugar and bitters, and that's it. Only order, unscrew, serve for every single cocktail. It's crazy talk. Yet that was South Carolina until 2006. Yes, 2006. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. My first trip to Charleston was long after 2006, and this town is on the top of everyone's list to visit. Could it be because of all the great bars? I was there as part of a group of journalists, the British Guild of Travel Writers to be exact, invited to experience the city. The first thing I did was research all the bars that could not be missed, and I put all I found into my Lush Guide to Charleston, which you can find on my blog, alushlifemanual.com. I gathered together a few people who are making the bar scene so dynamic. One was Scott Blackwell from Highwire Distillery, whom I had on the show a few weeks ago. But today I have Craig Nelson, whose bar proof has been written up in magazines for all the right reasons. Then we meet the bar managers of two of the most famous restaurants in the USA, which just happened to be in Charleston. Justin Simcoe, bar manager of the bar at Husk, and Ashley Dodds, bar manager of Fig. Fig. We're starting with Craig Nelson of Proof. And Conde Nast Traveler called him one of the founding fathers of the Charleston cocktail scene. I'll let him tell you how that journey began.
1: Um, I grew up here in Charleston. I uh, grew up over on James Island, which is just like one of the, I guess, one of the barrier islands to the city. Um, and uh, my family's been in Charleston for uh, a couple hundred years. And we. Um, When I was born, we lived on Folly Beach, and we moved over to James Island, which is just one Bear Island end, and um, that's it. Yeah, that's where I grew up.
0: And um, you said your family's been here for a couple generations. Where did they come from originally?
1: Um, We've got Scotch-Irish. We've got Swedish. We have some Native American. So a
0: proper American. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Full-on mutts. (laughs) Full-on mutts, exactly.
0: Now, um, on your website, it said that your first touch with hospitality was being dropped off at your grandmother's liquor store. Uh, can you yeah. tell me a little bit that, about that and your grandmother? And- sure,
1: yeah, my grandmother, she, was a, she, was, she and uh, my grandfather ran a liquor store for somebody else, and they had it for quite a few years. Um, when I was in kindergarten, the bus used to drop me off from the shopping center where the, where the liquor store was, and she had cleared off a, a shelf on the back, um, right behind the counter, where the half-pint bottles used to go and she would put like a little pallet there and I would take my nap after I after, uh, got out of kindergarten. So
0: you were like sleeping within the I would sleep and bottles. she would tape
1: the bell. <laughs> and when people come in, she'd catch them. It was oh, a really, really tiny that. little liquor store, just a little narrow shotgun space. And, um, and then when I would get up, I would dust bottles and organize and move things around and that was. Um, and, and how
0: long did you, were you dropped off at your grandmother's? Like until what age?
1: Um, I don't know, I think probably at least through first grade, but then my little sister started going to school. So I started walking her back and forth. Um, she's a couple years younger than me. So once she started going we would walk to school together. So she
0: wouldn't sleep in the liquor store? No, she that? didn't sleep Just in the liquor store so
1: much. Yeah. We, we were taking care of each other at that point in time.
0: So you were really familiar with kind of Drinking culture, even quite young.
1: It wasn't um, anything that was hidden from us. I would definitely say that, <laughs> I mean, it was out in the open. My grandmother would have her, you know, uh, bourbon with a with a side of Coke every afternoon. And my grandfather would have, uh, you know, generally a vodka drinker or a Jack Daniels and their friends would stop by in the afternoon and cocktail. And I got to where I could pour a scotch and soda and, and drinks, that kind of stuff.
0: And how old were you with that?
1: Probably seven, eight, nine. I
0: love it. You were like already a bartender. I was
1: uh, totally into serving. I thought it was the coolest thing.
0: So was that something that you? This was something that you knew that you would do literally from the get-go. I don't.
1: I don't know if I really put it together like that. I don't think I really knew that it was a job. You know, I was just. I just really enjoyed the entertaining part and getting stuff and pleasing them and and, and getting the proportions right because I thought that was really cool. Of they would give me a little shot glass instead of a jigger to, to measure out. And I thought that was really cool, just to be precise about it. So you were uh,
0: literally, like, technical as well. It wasn't just... Well, yeah, because yes. I'd
1: mess it up if I didn't, you know. Like, I couldn't... I, at seven, I couldn't eyeball it, so... I
0: thought they were like, okay, you make the drinks yeah. and get it right, right? Yeah. You know? Well, I was like,
1: whoa, this is way too strong, kid. You got to take this one back. Oh, and so, yeah. so they gave me something to measure with.
0: Oh. Yeah. So when you were at school, were you thinking, you know, oh, bartending, I want this to... Be something that I do, or were you? No, when I was in school, I was study just, something else, or
1: I, I just wanted to chase girls and go surfing. That's all I cared about when I was in school for the most part. I didn't, I wasn't real hell bent on anything particular.
0: So then, when you got out of school, what when happened? I was,
1: when I was fourteen, <coughs> excuse me, when I was fourteen, there was a, um, a family in the neighborhood that had a restaurant. And I was looking for an after-school job, and my dad talked to them, and they gave me a job, and it started out as washing dishes. And then it it moved into, uh, you know, like a busboy didn't show up one night, and I stepped into that role and helped the servers out. And um, and I and I really enjoyed it. You know, I really enjoyed being in the front of the house, really enjoyed kind of the service aspect of it. And I guess it came back around to what I enjoyed as a little kid and so then it just kind of stuck with me from there on
0: and did you just stay in restaurants I did then? I
1: stayed pretty much stayed in, in in food and beverage from then on uh-huh.
0: and when did you feel that uh, you know bartending was where you were gonna go from,
1: from there? Yeah. um on, I think after I got burned as a manager for other people a few few too many times you
0: mean like a restaurant manager? yeah, yeah.
1: once I realized that that was a not in my best interest to to put in that much work for that little money. I, I was like, I think I'm just going to stick to bartending. You guys can.
0: Had you bartended before?
1: Um, I think I got my first bartending, like official bartending gig when I was 21. Mm-hmm. So it was as early as I could get it.
0: And uh, what kind of things were you making? Just, you know, your standard.
1: Just your, uh, like a vodka cranberry. Um, I, I worked at a great, great place that was super family neighborhood, barbecue um, but they did shag the dance, like the shaggy dance. They did that every Wednesday night, and they had dollar Budweiser cans. And they, I mean, I think it was like three dollar. It was mini bottles back then, so that's all we could serve. Uh, so we really couldn't mix a proper drink, and that went on until 2006.
0: So what in the state of, the whole South, state of South Carolina, Carolina you on could that. only serve a drink using one mini bottle.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah. you could, you could, you could make it a um, could you a make a two mini it? bottle drink. You could, I mean, but you. The mixing proportions, if you open up the mini bottle, you had to use the whole thing. So you couldn't really get uh, a proper cocktail.
0: So, but were there bottles? There must have been bottles of alcohol in bars. Or was, is it just no, mini? the
1: only thing that we had really? uh, up until 2006 were mini bottles. That's it. The entire state. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the uh, January <laughs> 1st, 2006 is when we switched over to, you have the option. You can still have mini bottles if you'd like. Mm. But, um,
0: so is everything kind of proportioned that way? With with mini bottles like every cocktail in South Carolina, it, it was. Know, is, I
1: mean, it was then. Now, I mean, now yeah. it's 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 now it's just
0: free it's, range. It's free range. Yeah. You, could,
1: you know, you can make a drink a oh, proper gosh, drink. I didn't
0: realize that. Two thousand six. Yep. Two
1: thousand six. So, so. Um, so up until then, bartending was just about your speed and your hospitality mm-hmm. in this state. Really, it wasn't about mixing anything properly. It was okay. just about getting people's drink to them and you know providing them service, being happy, and remembering all the other aspects that go into it outside of mixology Mm -hmm.
0: well before 2006 then uh, of course that that is you know quite early in this cocktail culture that we have now um it being about you know 13 years ago
2: Mm
0: -hmm. were you ever thinking about you know the quality of the ingredients or you know that like when did that germ of you know, um, just making the people happy with a vodka tonic, I to, read about... am oh, going to create something.
1: Yeah, I started reading about... I don't remember what publication it was, but I read an article about um, a guy named Sasha Petrosky that had milk and honey, and I it just kind of was like, whoa, wait a second, that sounds super cool. And then I read a little bit more, and I found um, Dale DeGroff in, in, in a couple... You know, it was like spiraled into this dark web after I read this one article and it was the people that he mentioned. And then I started reading about them. And then I I got really inspired by that and took a couple of trips up to New York to check out the cocktail scene and and just kind of put it on a back burner. But like, this is something I want to do. And I started really focusing and and trying to learn as much as I could then.
0: And when were you able to actually practice it here in in Charleston? You know, what was your first job where you could do that?
1: Um, I'm trying to think timeline wise.
0: Or place-wise,
1: uh, there was a, a place called Fez on James Island that was a French Moroccan restaurant that was away from the city. I'd been downtown and worked at a lot of of the bigger, more popular restaurants, um, not necessarily bartending, but but uh, but managing. And then um, I worked at a Spanish restaurant that was super high volume and really, really, really popular and had like a disco in the back. And it was it was a lot of fun, but we couldn't really mix too much then because of the, the speed. Um, and when we did the place on James Island, I came in as kind of an operating partner and um, we were able to start putting some drinks behind the bar was some of the things we were doing.
0: What do you think you took away from New York that you wanted to... Um definitely bring here were there like a few things that, that you saw while you were there that you said that
1: um you know, the, God, there were so many things I still love New York so much um it the, just the precision and the pride in taking in the cocktails and you know um having somebody like Sam Ross come up to your table and he doesn't know you from anybody and just sits there and takes the time to talk to you about what kind of drink it is that you want and let me fill you out and then he comes back and it's it's absolutely perfect was like I gotta figure out how to do that. That's that's pretty cool. Uh-huh.
0: So when you ha- were at this the French Moroccan restaurant, mm-hmm. uh, do you remember any of the you know first cocktails that you we created? We did.
1: We did. Um, one was a it was an apertif. It was a, we called it the Club Fez apertif, and there was a combination of Lillet. Um, I think there was some chocolate bitters. Orange uh, soda. It was just really light and refreshing, and it kind of went along with the, with the with the atmosphere of the place. So you kind of come in and have one of these, and just kind of you know get your appetite going.
0: And while you were creating them, were you thinking, okay, this is this is this is something that I know I'm going to love and continue to do? That the whole creative process of it.
1: Uh, I get. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I stepped away from it for a little while. That place didn't work out so good. Uh, I stepped away from it and went to more of a neighborhood bar um, where I wasn't, I didn't really have the, the ability to, to do that. It was um, a great place, but it just it wasn't the kind of place where you mix drinks. And um, But I got restless, and I, I kept doing it anyway, and I started competing. And um,
0: What was your first competition? Do you remember?
1: I think it was for the Wine and Food Festival here, and um, I did the, the, the Charleston Buck Cocktail. And it was because it was sponsored by Brown Foreman and, uh, it's a Woodford cocktail and I did an egg white cocktail and it was the first one and we won and then they couldn't use it because, uh, they were worried at that time. This is, this is how long ago it was. At that time they were worried about people being allergic to eggs. So they were like, Oh, we can't use this cocktail. You're going to get the prize, but oh, we can't uh, use now. the cocktail. Uh-huh. And I was like, all right, you know, but, um, that helped get some attention and actually even helped get the bar going. So mm-hmm. was um, stepping out from that and just mixing these things and competing here and there kind of drew some attention to me and helped me get the, the bar going.
0: So when, get, when did proof become something that you thought you could do? Or did, were you asked to... To come in as would, it was opening? Yeah, and well, tell no. Tell me a little bit about the history um, of Well, I was
1: working in the neighborhood bar, uh, and the two gentlemen that owned that, and they own a large restaurant group, saw that I was getting them some attention and getting them some press through there, because I always put the bar first when I would do a cocktail contest or, you know, mix a drink, and, um, and they had the lease on this space, and they came and asked if I'd be interested in uh, going into business with them. And um, I said, they, they were like, We have an idea. It's going to be a, uh, a dessert bar with some cocktails. And I went, Well, I have an idea that I've been working on already. And here you go. And they were like, Oh, whoa, okay. So.
0: And what was your idea?
1: This pretty much proof. It was, we wanted, I wanted a place where my wife and I could both go have um, a glass of wine or a beer or a good mixed cocktail that wasn't necessarily a restaurant. Because to get all of those things, We could either go to um, like a a good craft cocktail bar, but the wine and beer selection would be kind of lacking. Or we could go to a really good beer bar or we could go to a really good wine bar, but we couldn't kind of necessarily sit down. And I'm a kind of a schizophrenic drinker. I'm like, I might start off with a glass of sparkling wine and switch to a cocktail and finish with a beer. And so we wanted to go someplace where the music was right and the lights were right and we could order all of those things. And so that was the kind of the, the idea behind Proof. There were plenty of places to go, sit at the counter, and eat, and get all three of those things, but um, there weren't many places where we could go and just do all of that in one. Just as far as like drinking and socializing.
0: Now you mentioned that there were craft cocktail bars. Mm-hmm. So how was how has the scene changed in Charleston? It has know, from 2006 little mini bottles to embracing craft cocktails. How long have you seen? I mean, yeah. it,
1: it, it, it honestly started right off the right off the rip. Uh, people started, let's do this. Like, get in, let's start mixing. Um,
0: now that we can use the full bottle.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I remember it's I was... really
0: even 13 years ago.
1: Yeah, just. people just started getting it going. You know, like, they just started playing around with it. And you also had... So the restaurant scene was really starting to take off here and starting to get a lot of acknowledgement. And the tours I think, are the ones that kind of pushed the craft cocktail scene here. Uh, because I remember sitting at the bar at fig and one of the owners, Adam coming by and putting a bottle of slow gin behind the bar within like the first month of us getting big bottles and the bartender looking at him and going, what do you, what do you want me to do with that? And he's like, in case somebody wants a slow gin fizz, do we got slow gin now? And he, the bartender was like, I guess I I need to learn how to make a slow gin fizz now. I'm like, all right, okay. But you know, Adam was like, we need to have this behind the bar. Mm -hmm. And, so, so it really I'm,
0: upped the ante for even all the bartenders. Oh, yeah. You just had to learn how to make things that you might never have had to make before.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, and then we had a lot of people starting to come to town because they could practice their I mean, Charleston's a great city. So we had a lot of folks from New York, Boston, um, other parts of Chicago, different parts of the country start to move here because they're like, oh, now I can practice my trade. You know, mm-hmm. like it's not okay. I'm not going to this place for cracking mini bottles and taping my fingers up every night. And but Charleston's a great city to live. And they, so you know, we started getting people from outside to come in and bring influence Mm -hmm. into and ideas.
0: And and while when you first opened Proof, um, did you were you still competing as well at the same time? I was,
1: I was. I kind, I really used the competition stuff as a as a means of getting um, attention for us. PR. Um, we, We don't normally do any advertising or anything like that. So the the cocktail competitions were a really good way to get your name out and get noticed um, and then I, what I came to find out is like especially in the cocktail world it's it seems like it's a huge group of people but it's really not that big everybody kind of knows each other and if you there you network you socialize you make these connections and people kind of take care of each other you know like I, we get people coming in from our friends in Seattle and we do the same thing when we have a customer that's going to Seattle we go go see Lindsay or you know whatever so it's uh, it really pays off
0: did you see it? Have you seen it become kind of a destination bar, like people come from all over the world to come and to, to, to a
1: certain degree. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. To a certain degree. I mean, I think that the reviews and things like that, that we've gotten the press help when people come to town and we're doing a lot more airfare direct to a lot of major cities now. So when they're sitting on the plane, I think they're they're catching us and they're coming in for sure.
0: So tell me about the menu. Um, you know you they said great we want to go with your idea where did you start with your cocktail menu we
1: started very small we (laughs) started we started with like 10 drinks I think on the first cocktail menu um and it was mainly I think there were three drinks that were kind of uh riffs on something else like I mean we just modified the, the gin and tonic a little bit it's a gin and tonic though um the Charleston Buck that we'd done for the cocktail contest, and then this in Manhattan was, was uh, not standard uh, Manhattan because we used uh, Madeira and, and bourbon that's infused with the um, Lapsing Souchong. Um, and then everything else was just straight, really by the book, classics. I mean, no, no deviation whatsoever.
0: And did you find people responding pretty well to we those? We did.
1: We did, yeah. People really, really enjoyed that. And at that time in 2012, we still had a lot of folks that hadn't tried a Manhattan or a, 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 an old-fashioned. Or, you know, they'd just seen it on Mad Men. And so they were coming in and like, you have an old-fashioned? It's
0: crazy. I kind of think that the South is all bourbon. Yeah. So you're saying that people hadn't really even had an old-fashioned? Yeah, there were still a
1: lot of people that, that hadn't. You know, I mean, they... You know, they'd have their bourbon and gingers for sure. But, but, um, you know, or a a proper martini, like a good 50-50 martini was just, you know, everybody just wanted a vodka martini. It took us, we're still battling that one, but we don't really battle it. Uh, If you want a vodka martini, fine. No problem. You can have it. Uh,
0: Have you found that people were um, welcoming to, or that if someone wanted something and you said, oh, that's really great, but have you tried this? Do you think?
1: That's about as far as we would go with it. Uh Um, And we... um, Did you get a lot of takers with that? When we first opened, we were probably a little bit more insistent upon, that's not a martini or that's not an um, old-fashioned. And I would say that lasted about three months. And then we decided, you know what, this is really not that that hospitable. And in general, this is just, let's... Let's give them what they want and then we can talk about the other right. thing while they're at the bar and we warm them up a little bit and maybe we make it for them and just send it over to them and see what they think. And um, and we would we would try to win people over that way instead of. But I would definitely say the first three months we made the mistake of a lot of young spots of being very militant about our cocktails are going to be the way that they you were supposed to have be. A dirty you cannot martini. have it that way. You no. have a dirty vodka. You can have martini. it, but you can't call it a martini. Right. You know, I don't know. It was silly. <laughs> We look back on it now and definitely think that was really silly because that was one of the points is that we wanted to have a cocktail bar where I could come in and order the 50-50 and my wife could order her dirty martini and nobody was going to say a word about it. And it was like, wait, we forgot that. So, you know, we we quickly scrapped that attitude.
0: Now, you mentioned your um, gin and tonic. Um, it you know, you Google your gin and tonic and it got a lot of press and um, uh, you know, you were named food and wines, one of the best 50 best bars in the country. Uh, Not, I'm not, not saying it's only because of the gin and tonic, but how did you tinker with it? What did you, you know, talk me through your creative process, even for something such a simple drink.
1: Yeah. That drink came about completely by um, um, after I won the wine and food festival uh, contest 2009 10 something like that they one of the part of the prizes was just a great big box of booze and like bitters and mixed and um things that weren't available here in the market and i just started playing with it and i had fallen in love with hendrix gin um it was definitely my gateway gin i was at a, I was like i'm not a gin drinker at all and then i was like well, you cannot be a bar- you can't be a bartender and not be a gin drinker so like buck up buddy you know and and I started drinking Hendrix. Now, I, I, you know, the more juniper, the better. That didn't last long to, to take long to get to that point. But um, I started making this drink when I worked on Saturday nights at the neighborhood bar. And I would want to sit down at the bar for my wife and I had had our first or second child. And I wanted to just get just a just like 20 minutes at the bar before I went home. And it was my early night out. Um And I knew that she would probably be putting the baby to sleep right about that time. So like it wouldn't have been good for me to just bust in the door. Um, And so we had to change. So I would make the drink in a pint glass and I would uh, muddle the cucumber and put the lemon bitters in there, a little bit of lemon juice. And it just it kind of slowly changed until I got it exactly where I wanted it. And I would go to the bathroom and change. And then when I come out, somebody had drank half of my gin and tonic and it started happening like every single Saturday night. And I was like, oh, wait, I think I think other people like this. And it would be one of the servers would come by or the kitchen guys would come by and they, they grabbed my pint glass and they just knocked back half of it. So they were kind of doing me a favor. I didn't need the whole thing before I went home anyway. But I was like, well, I think I think this drink's going to work. And so I brought it with me.
0: So do you think you'll make one for me at the bar now?
1: I'd be happy to make one for you.
0: All right, cool. All right. Next is Justin Simcoe, bar manager of the bar at Husk. Husk is the brainchild of Chef Sean Brock, which, although he stepped down as culinary advisor in May, still is one of the most important restaurants in the USA. Justin explained to me just how the restaurant and the bar work together.
3: So the bar as a physical building is separate. It's uh, It was built in the 1830s. as a three-story single-family home, burned down during the Civil War, not because of it, just there were a lot of fires at that time and, you know, no fire brigade or no working fire brigade um, available. Uh, so it sat in rubble for about 30 years. It was rebuilt in 1907 as a two-story single-family home by a different family. Um, so it is a two-story building. Um, all the brick is original. All, the, like, the earthquake beams going through it are original. Um, so that has a really nice – adds to the atmosphere, adds to the environment. You feel like you're sitting in a, you know an old basement hanging out. Um, Drinking whiskey or cocktails or something like that. Um, as far as why, or as far as like the uh, the cocktail program itself, um, I don't know if hyper seasonal is the right term, but we change our drink menu. We change like five or six drinks out every month and a half, two months, three months, depending on how quickly we're getting new produce in. So like during the winter, it's a little less interesting just because we're getting a lot of root vegetables, and that's not you know the most exciting thing but like right now we're starting to get, we just started to get dewberries in. um, So that means that raspberries, strawberries, all the other fruits are, all the other berries are on the way, uh, as well as peaches. We're going to be getting tomatoes soonish, I hope. Uh, A lot of fresh herbs, a lot of flowers. So we got a lot of new stuff to play with and whatever kind of comes through that, the kitchen door is what I use in the cocktails. I don't generally special order anything. Um, Like we don't use pineapples because we don't have pineapples in the South. and then, as far as the cocktails go, we kind of my things kind of stay closer to classic cocktails and do twists and um, maybe do like one different ingredient. Or if we make something, have it just be kind of weird and people see it on the menu and they really is that is that what you're doing? Like, yeah, it's cool. It's different. You're not gonna get it anywhere else.
0: What's an example of that on the menu now?
3: Right now, uh, I have a drink with purple cabbage in it. I have a spicy margarita with purple cabbage in it. So it's not for the flavor but um, it's for the color. So when you add lime juice to the anthocyanin, which is in uh, purple cabbage, it goes from being this like dark purple or gray color when it oxidizes to bright pink, like bright, bright pink. So it looks really cool. Um, It's a little earthy, but the drink also has a little mezcal in it. So the smoke kind of vegetal quality all blends together really nicely in the cocktail as well as being really pretty and Instagram worthy as it were.
0: And you say you make things, obviously, hyper-seasonal. Uh, and um, I was just wondering, do you come up with the ideas before you get the produce? You know, how do, You know how quickly can you create a new drink?
3: Um, as far as... Far as, as so the, the way that the cocktail menu's set up right now mm-hmm. is I kind of know what their yeah. twist's on. So, like, one's a twist of a martini, one's a twist of a margarita. And then I can... Depending on what shows up, I can do another play on a margarita with berries or something or a twist on a gin and tonic um, with some other ingredients that show up as long as you stick to a similar formula, as it were. Um, so as soon as I taste whatever comes in, I can usually come up with one pretty quickly. The name's usually the most difficult part, which gets frustrating when I have a great drink and I just can't nail down a something clever or something just... I don't know, that fits well. But um, the turnaround for drinks, it's pretty quick. Once I taste the ingredient, once I talk with our chefs and um, we have that conversation, how do you think this would, what's the best way to get the flavor of this fruit out of the actual fruit? Like, what's the best way to get a the maximum yield, if you will?
0: Uh, that was going to be my next question is about is about working with the chefs always, as
3: well. Always, always. Um, so we get we get new deliveries of, Produce everything in almost every single day of the week. I'll stand in the walk-in with our butcher for the day, and whenever the sous chefs show up, um, kind of have that conversation separately with all of them, just because they're working on their projects. Um, and I'll ask them, you know, what flavors they think would pair well with it, what they've d- what they've done dish-wise in the past that have been really successful with, say, loquats or something else that's you know. An abs- relatively obscure greening I might have not picked up at the grocery store that I'm not familiar, that familiar with, because I can Google, you know, you can Google anything, but having a conversation with these guys who have been hands on with it for years um, who might have like a little secret to how to get a little bit more flavor out, whether it be use vinegar or some salt or who knows, whatever other methods that they're using. So um, yeah, i talk with them very regularly. We hang out after when we hang out after work, we talk about work, but we talk about food a lot. And it's usually about new stuff coming in, things that they're excited about that then I get excited about. Because we can just kind of nerd out and hang out and talk. Flavor nerd out. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah.
0: All right. Thanks so much. Yeah, of course. How can I describe fig? Which is short for food is good, by the way. Chef Mike Lata and his partner Adam Nemoro started it all. In 2003, no one was talking Southern food outside of New Orleans. Then Fig came along and changed all that. Ashley is here to tell us how the bar fares in one of the great American restaurants.
2: Yeah, so Fig has been open. Uh, we just hit Sweet 16 uh, coming up, so it's pretty exciting. Um, I know you just had dinner at our sister restaurant, The Ordinary, and they've been open for about six years. Um and I think one of the beautiful things about owners, um, Chef Mike Lada and Adam Nimro, um, who you just met, they um, really honed in on fig for a decade, 10 years. This was their only property, um, their only restaurant, their only baby for the longest time. So they really created this amazing culture. Um, they're still here, you know, all the time, very often, but they um, have really built um a culture and an ethos um, that all kind of aspects of the restaurant follow. Um, I think it being chef-owned is very important. Um, Everything in the restaurant kind of centers back to the menu, back to the food. I mean, that's why people go out to dinner. You know, they come for the food. That's the main thing. And then all the other sensory, um, you know, parts of it are just kind of create a, a better picture so the wine and in our case the bar program um, but this restaurant is really focused on uh, the food and the menu um, but yeah after 10 years um, you know they opened up their other property but yeah we hit 16 years and it's a pretty awesome place to work we have a couple of core um, members in place I have been here for um, seven years going on and I started out as a food runner um, as a server assistant and I kind of served for a little while and bartended for a little while, Um, and now my kind of official title is dining room manager. Um, But that's really just a vague term. Um, I do everything from working with reservations to, in this case, kind of doing the more administrative organization of the bar. Uh, We have a fabulous bar team. We have three full-time bartenders, um, Nikki Fairman, um, Danielle Givanoni and Michael Boyano. So three awesome bartenders that kind of all work really creatively together. I know a lot of restaurants and bar programs have like one head creative director. Um, this kind of allows us to have everyone pull in their strengths. Um, some lean more classic and kind of boozy stirred cocktails. Um, some lean a little bit more like fun and creative and colorful and a little bit more whimsical. So and get, like, lots of different styles, and everyone kind of riffs off of one another, and, you know, I may have the final say and you know, cocktail names or glassware or, like, just tweaking here and there, but at the end of the day, it's a really collaborative effort, which makes a really fun environment to work behind the bar. Um, it's really
0: cool. How often do you change your bar menu? So we, um, in the
2: past couple of years, we have done like some big changes, maybe seasonally four times a year. Um, Right now we're a little bit more, kind of like our menu is updated and printed daily. Um, You know, we don't have... (laughs) where the whole menu will be cleared out and we'll put a whole new menu on um if you were to come here tonight and then come back three months later the menu would may look totally different Um, but really it happens in gradual changes and so our cocktail list is kind of mimicking that a little bit so we'll keep a cocktail for a couple weeks a couple months um switch it out with something different Um, we may have a really um you know couple weeks ago we had a beautiful crop of uh, strawberries come in so we did like a little strawberry sparkler cocktail um so it doesn't have full changes as much anymore um it's more of every couple weeks we just kind of shift and take things out kind of an ebb and flow of the cocktail list some things will go away forever some things will come back um it just kind of depends on what we're working on at the time um do you guys work with the chefs as well not too so much it pretty um, separate. Um, I mean, they help us out a lot as far as letting us know, like when the surplus of winter strawberries came in, um, it was a fun way for us to kind of utilize what they had a little bit um, extra quantity of. Um, you know, right now we're using um, some seasonal produce, like with cucumbers. It really just depends. Um, they help us out with some like fresh herbs when they're getting really beautiful herbs in, or maybe, you know, it's more of just them giving us a heads up and us kind of going from there um and chef likes to come in and taste and he really his kind of like ethos as far as like food is concerned you know you have to have all the components you have to have um, the acidity you have to have um the the structure of the cocktail needs to be there um but a lot of that is really based on food as well one of our bartenders is a um a pastry chef and so i think that that's a really um fun kind of draw between the the culinary and the beverage side, you know, you need all those aspects of the the final product to make it work, all the right balances, Um, the bitter, the sweet, the acid, you know, you get people who come in and say, oh, we don't want a sweet cocktail. It's like, well, you do need a little richness to to balance out that super, you know, bitter Amaro or the really bright acidity of the fresh lime or the fresh lemon or whatever you're working with. So, um, you know, I would say that it's, the chef doesn't really have a handle on, the cocktail list too much but his philosophies are definitely seen in the cocktail list if that makes sense Pretty
0: so fun. talk me through some of the cocktails that you have on the menu now yeah um and
2: that's also really fun too, Morgan, um, who is our general manager. Morgan Calcoch, who's also our kind of wine buyer. Um, you started. We started to see a lot of like wine-based spirits come into play. And I think that's really fun. You know, we're known for our food and some of our, you know, um, best chef awards, also our outstanding wine program award and things like that. Like people know us for food and for wine and it's really fun to kind of pull those elements into the cocktail list as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll see like a lot of vermouth or aromatized like wine-based spirits, um, throughout the cocktail list right now. Um, like this, uh, Rosso vermouth and the Bianco vermouth we're using, um, Monte Rosa. He's an amazing actual, just like wine producer. Um, but then he makes these two vermouths using, you know, aromatics and herbal kind of components. Um, he actually like grows a lot of them on his farm. It's pretty amazing. Um, his name is Danielle Guerrilla. Um, it's pretty awesome. So you're seeing some of that. Um, you know, we like the Southern Shandy right now. We really wanted to do something with the Highwire Southern Amaro. So sometimes that's how like these cocktails are created, where we have friends like Scott and Ann from Highwire, and we say, all right, we're going to make something with this Amaro. And we kind of tweak around and play around and. This kind of came out of it. We really like the idea of doing something with the, with the shandy. Um, we're using the uh, Blackberry Farm Saison right now, which is an amazing, you know, out of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're in- insane. Um, so that's a really fun um, kind of cocktail right now. It has like fresh ginger. We're using fresh ginger. So it has that spice to it. Um, the beer is really, really delicious in there as well. Um, the Cheshire Cat. This is definitely our more like whimsical, fun kind of imaginative cocktail. Uh, Nikki said she really wanted to do a color change cocktail, which is a oh, little fire outside fire. of our of our realm. We usually tend to go a little bit more like classic plays and kind of unmanipulated ingredients. But she really wanted to work with it, so we kind of um, played around with it. We made some delicious cucumber tequila. Um that's yeah, bad. It's really nice. Um, so we have that, and then we have a couple of. Like floral elements We're using orange blossom water uh, um elderflower syrup Nikolayev is a pretty um, amazing walkout, um wine producer That we know about from our wine program mm-hmm. So when we heard that they made elderflower syrup We got some in and used it in this cocktail. cocktails so That's another way Like It's not just the food that comes into play It's also our wine program that comes into play It all kind of ties We, we use each other a lot So when she was bringing in Nikolayoff wine We decided to pick up their elderflower So that's pretty fun Um, but it uses butterfly or yeah, butterfly pea extract, which changes from like deep purple to Mm -hmm. the blue. So it's really, really whimsical. Um, it's called the Cheshire Cat. It literally has like a little vessel off the side that says pour me, just like in Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. It's pretty adorable. You pour it in, get a little stir, it changes colors. Um, but then you have something like the gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which is, is definitely a playoff of a classic. This is a playoff of um, a white Negroni. Mm-hmm. So you're using Suze and Gin. Um, we're using the um, Amaro Nino. Um, we love that, you know, producer as far as they make amazing grappa. Um, and in this case, we are using their Amaro. So that's really fun. Um, so, yeah, kind of kind of. You get to see lots of different styles. You get to see stirred, boozy, classic oriented cocktails. You get to see really fun plays off of a shandy, like who puts on a shandy nowadays, you know? Um, And then the Cheshire Cat, which is just like really fun and whimsical and kind of out of left field almost,
0: which is really fun. So So would you make me one of those Cheshire Cats? Yeah, of course. Perfect. A huge thank you to Craig, Justin, and Ashley for being on the show make sure to check out my Guide to Drinking Establishments in Charleston at alushlifemanual.com for addresses and links to all the places mentioned, plus many, many more. Now, are you all dying to try the Cheshire Cat? Well, you won't have to wait long, as it's now time for our Cocktail of the Week. Our Cocktail of the Week is the Whimsical Cheshire Cat, created by bartender Nikki Fairman. First, you have to make the aforementioned cucumber tequila. So, vacuum seal one liter of silver tequila and 400 grams of peeled, de-seeded sliced cucumbers. Place it in a 140 degree water bath for two hours. Then after that, shock in an ice bath for 20 minutes, then strain. Now you're ready to build the Cheshire Cat. In a rocks glass over one large ice cube, add two droppers of butterfly pea extract, six drops of orange blossom water, and two ounces of the chilled cucumber tequila. Then give the contents a quick stir just to incorporate them. In another tiny glass, combine 0.75 ounces of lime juice and 0.75 ounces of elderflower syrup together. Then, when you're ready to drink, pour in the small glass of ingredients and give it a stir and watch the magic happen. Yes, it changes color. You'll find this recipe and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. Next time, we're behind the Westbury Hotel's Polo Bar in London. This stalwart of Bond Street has been given an injection of spirit by a new bar manager who sits down with me to tell me how he found himself in the middle of the fashion district. Until next time, bottoms up. Thanks for listening to the Lush Life Podcast. For more information and links to everything you've heard, Plus a whole lot more. Please visit LushLifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde. All things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. Theme music is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra. And I'm your drinking partner, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar.